five seconds to submergence. Submergence deep into the absurd. They say in the Bhagavad Gita that time is the waster of all peoples. Death, destruction, and turmoil are inevitable parts of existence. Philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche go so far as to say that death is the necessary force behind creation. Um, you, you need to destroy things in order to create. You need to burn down a forest in order to have the fertilizer to grow a new one. You need to break down your car before you want to buy a new one, right? Um, you need to scratch out your rough draft to write your final draft. Um, you need to destroy it in order to create. And I mentioned this in a prior episode, uh, but so Nietzsche has the aphorism on the camel, the lion, and the child. Where the camel is the uh, first step in the spiritual metamorphosis. Essentially, at first we're slaves. We're uh, slaves to society, we're slaves to its rules, and we follow it. Then we're a lion. We get pissed off, we, uh, we rebel, we rebel out of anger, and we destroy everything in our path. And finally, once we've destroyed, we see a new world in which we can create. And that's when we're the child. And we see this uh, same thing. So in the, in the Bhagavad Gita, there's time being the waster of all peoples. Well, time is also the creator of all peoples, right? Over time, all things die, but over time, things are created as well. Things are born. Things come into existence. And uh, in order to evolve, one must cut out that which weakens them and strengthen that which makes them stronger. Um, d d destruction as a necessary evil behind the force of creation is nothing new. Now let's, uh, let's say that I go and I start building a skyscraper. I'm unsure how tall I want it to be, but for the most part, I want it to be taller than everyone else's. I want it to be the tallest skyscraper ever known. Well, it turns out, so does everyone else. So I, uh, I start building a skyscraper, and everyone else does, and I get around to the 100th floor. And when I get to that 100th floor, there's a new study that comes out. They say that the material that we're using to build all of our skyscrapers, it's, it's faulty. Our skyscrapers are doomed to fail. They're going to collapse at, at some point. And the, uh, the taller the building is, the more catastrophic it'll be. So after hearing this, uh, all the other builders, many of them at least, um, they attempted to replace part by part their entire building with strong material or just start all over in general. But no one could agree as to what the new material should be, so most of the buildings were left in constant stagnation and disputation. I, on the other hand, uh, I ignored the evidence, and I refused to construct a 
new building. And I just kept building, taller and taller and taller. And I mean, all my other uh, biggest competitors, they kept building too. They just said, fuck your damn evidence. I'm going to keep building. Screw this. Like, I'm, I'm already on the 100th floor. I, I have to keep going. Like, I can't just stop now. Right? So I get to the 250th floor, and I start to realize that my building is becoming more and more fragile. A single earthquake would be enough to take the whole thing down. At that point, um, I'm thinking, well, destroying the building and starting all over with a better material would probably be a good idea. But, I mean, I was already that far along. I was on the 250th floor, so screw that. Um, I just kept going. Um, But, I mean, you know, I started, like, at least replacing some of it part by part. You know, like, as quickly as I could, right? You know, getting some people in and, and replacing it part by part. So around the 300th floor, another study came out saying that my architecture was outdated, that the new material I was using to reconstruct my building was not going to work with the design of my building. And unfortunately, I knew deep down that the study is completely unnecessary because it was obvious that my building was tuned for destruction but nonetheless I got that far and I'm certainly not going to let my competitors get higher than me so I kept going next thing you know a big bad wolf blows the whole thing down and now big bad wolves aren't allowed in airports anymore you know the story all no if a system is built on faulty foundations, no amount of reformation will prevent it from collapsing. Reformation requires the utilization of new materials to make the old structure stronger. However, if the old structure is outdated, then how much good will reformation do? Ted Kaczynski, or most famously known as the Unabomber, or Unabomber, I'm not sure. I'll call him Crazy Uncle Ted was a mathematician, philosopher, psychologist, and unfortunately a domestic terrorist of the late 20th century. As quoted from the FBI website, the man that the world would eventually know as Theodore Kaczynski came to our attention in 1978 with the explosion of his first primitive homemade bomb at a Chicago university. Over the next 17 years, he mailed or hand-delivered a series of increasingly sophisticated bombs that killed three Americans and injured nearly two dozen more. Along the way, he sowed fear and panic. Dude, Siri just talked. That, that's perfect for this discussion. Hold on, hold on. Hey, Siri. Who is Ted Kaczynski? Theodore John Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber, is an American domestic terrorist and former mathematics professor. Do you want me to keep reading? Yes. He was a mathematics prodigy, but abandoned his academic career in 1969 to pursue a primitive life. Between 1978 and 1995, he killed three people and injured 23 others in a nationwide bombing campaign against people he believed to be advancing modern technology and the destruction of the environment. Thanks, Siri. <laughs> Perfect. 
a great use of technology today. Anyways, um, Ted was completely against technology. And he killed a lot of people because of it. And a lot of people in the tech industry. Um, in, in 1995, Crazy Uncle Ted sent a 35,000-word essay to the Washington Post, threatening to strike again if it wasn't published. The FBI de director decided to let them publish it, and with all the personality etched within the essay, they were able to gather enough evidence to arrest him in, on April 3, 1996. And he's still in prison to this day in like a supermax prison or whatever in Colorado. So while he destroyed the lives of a shitload of people and their families, this does not whatsoever subtract from the insights that he gave in his essay, Industrial Society and Its Future, which is becoming more and more relevant as time moves forward. I understand that it is perhaps immoral to entertain the philosophies of a terrorist, but in order to work with evil, we must first understand it. The FBI has said it themselves that Crazy Uncle Ted was an evil genius, and in many cases he was. We'll examine his essay not only to understand why he committed such horrible acts of destruction, but also to understand how society itself can be so twisted, corrupt, and broken as to turn a genius into a terrorist. So, without further ado, let's do an analysis on Ted Kaczynski's essay, Industrial Society and Its Future. The essay is composed of 27 parts, which each dive into different aspects of psychology, modern sociology, the problems with industrial society and technology, and why revolution is easier than reform. I'll go through each of the 27 sections, summarizing them and explaining their main points, starting with the introduction. It should be mentioned that I do not whatsoever advocate the use of violence to achieve one's ends. What I do advocate for, however, is one's need and desire to understand, think, and evolve. As such, this analysis is meant to give an insight as to how and why our society is fragile and corrupt. As mentioned, understanding evil is how one conquers it. While I do not necessarily believe in good or evil, I do believe in problems and solutions, with problems being evil and solutions being good. Um, at least that's my take on it. And... And obviously problems are relative to the person, right? You know, uh, it's, it's evil that I don't have a, that I have no way of opening a Corona extra beer. Um, but my solution, the good thing is I got a bottle opener. So anyways, um, with that said, let, let's dive into the problems of industrial society and some potential solutions with crazy uncle Ted. Introduction. Ted begins with, and I quote, The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in, quote-unquote, advanced countries. But they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, 
have subjected human beings to indignities have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world to physical suffering as well and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering, even in, quote-unquote, advanced countries, end quote. So this, uh, this statement, this paragraph kind of serves as a thesis statement, uh, kind of a statement of the main conflict. Um, we live in a deeply troubled society, especially after the Industrial Revolution. It's created widespread psychological suffering. I mean, uh, I was even reading this book, Civilized to Death, by, by uh, Dr. Chris Ryan. And there's... In part of it, it's saying that there's actually a large number of toddlers who are legit on antidepressants today. Um, lots of people are depressed. They can't handle the stressors of modern society. I mean, we're... Ah, shoot. I shouldn't even get into the... You'll find out later. You'll find out later. I don't want to, like, give away the main points of his essay but it's it's fucked up you know there's uh, there's a lot of bad shit going on these days and there was a time when things were a lot simpler um and i mean look at me i'm <laughs> i'm recording a podcast i mean this i have a microphone that was made somewhere i don't even know i have a computer monitor i'm reading my notes off of i have a computer sitting in front of me that i'm recording this on I have a beer that was produced at some factory somewhere um, where the, like, the barley or whatever was grown somewhere else. And the material to make the glass was made somewhere else in the factory. And, you know, it's all, all this is just this huge freaking conglomerate of multiple things. And I'm, <laughs> I, I'm taking part of it. Yeah, but um, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I guess I enjoy industrial society, but... It definitely has problems. And that's kind of one thing that I want to bring up is that, you know, we don't have to abandon technology, but we can look at Ted's essay in uh, in another light and not like, you know, let's not completely get rid of society, but we can definitely understand like what's going on and why people are so upset, right? So anyways, um uh, just so you know, all the paragraphs are numbered. Uh, I'm not going through every every single paragraph. I, I kind of just have points from each section, and I'll say like the section before I get into the paragraphs. But, anyways, uh, the next point: the the system may survive or it may break down, but the larger the system is, the harder it'll fall. Right? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. And even if industrial society survives, there will be nothing more than engineered products and will be nothing more than engineered products uh, of a system that enslaves us. There is, quote, 
no way of reforming or modifying the system so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy. Now, uh, this is where Crazy Uncle Ted earns the title of Crazy Uncle Ted, as he then advocates for a, quote, revolution against the industrial system, whose, quote, object will be to overthrow the economic and technological basis of present society. So he, he, uh, he then throws in a disclaimer mentioning that he is not giving an analysis on everything wrong about society, but those things that are given little attention but are also making a huge impact. Section two, the psychology of modern leftism. So we live in a deeply troubled society. One of the biggest manifestations of this is leftism. So a psychological analysis of leftism will suit the purposes of the essay. Uh, and just like as my own disclaimer, I know Ted will give a lot of disclaimers, so this is almost like a fourth wall break. Um, I'm kind of like, as I'm doing my notes, I'm kind of like explaining it like as if I'm Ted. And then I'm kind of like breaking away and like maybe sometimes like analyzing what's going on. So, uh, so I might, you, you might be unaware if like I'm saying something or if I'm just like summarizing part of the essay but for the most part, I'm just summarizing the essay. Um, anyways, Ted is not describing leftism as a movement or political category, but rather a psychological type, where there are two psychological tendencies that underlie leftism. This is one, feelings of inferiority, and two, over-socialization. Okay. Section three, feelings of inferiority. Quote, by feelings of inferiority, we mean not only inferiority of feelings in the strict sense, but a whole spectrum of related traits, low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, depressive tendencies, defeatism, guilt, self-hatred, etc. We argue that modern leftists tend to have some such feelings, possibly more or less repressed, and that these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism, end quote. Interpreting anything said about you as derogatory and a, is a sign of feelings of inferiority, low self-esteem, etc. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm even guilty of this. I'll like hear people, like even like my girlfriend, like say something about me and I'll interpret it as negative and it's just totally objective thing that she's saying. It's, it's just like she's making an observation, right? And I'll interpret it as negative and that's like, uh, that's partly because I, I do at times have low self-esteem. I do at times feel poor about myself. And I am slightly left at times, slightly right. Um, and I don't know how all this ties into like left side of the brain and right side. But, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a sign of low self-esteem. When you hear something negative or, or when you hear something you interpret as negative, about yourself, then you're kind of already thinking those things about yourself, right? So that's why you notice it. Um, so minority activists often take words that originally had no derogatory meaning, such as oriental, handicapped, or chick, and replace them, or then place an offensive connotation upon them. 
Yeah, so like uh, no one gets upset when you call a guy a guy, right? But guy is like basically the same. It's the male equivalent of chick. And chick is now offensive, right? Um, but it's it's just a word that means girl, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> um, and it's it's fine if you think it's offensive, but uh, just think about that for a second. Like, why is guy not offensive, but chick is? Um, so he, he brings up the example of animal rights activists insisting that one should not use the word pet, but rather animal companion. Mm. Now that is interesting. I mean, for me, I kind of, so like my, my thing with pets is like, I like having them, but for some reason I do feel guilt with like having pets because I'm just thinking like, uh, this is almost like the same thing as basically having a zoo. Like, I know their lives are good, but like, you know, the whole freedom thing. But I mean, that, you know, I'll, I'll use that like example myself, you know, I'm like, oh God, like the, the thing is like, uh, it's kind of like a push away from the truth of it. Because, like, having a pet, you're basically, I mean, you're basically holding a animal captive to, like, like have it give you affection and more comfort. Like, you know, maybe not that strict, but, like, calling a pet an animal companion is kind of almost taking away the, at like, how, like, the badness of it. Like, calling it a pet, like, that's more like yeah, it's a pet, like, that's the truth, it, it's just a pet, you know, it's not an animal companion, it's, it's a pet, um, I don't know, but anyways, uh, they do not want people to use words that could have a negative interpretation, why, why, because, well, that's, <laughs> he'll get into it, but it's, it's a low self-esteem thing, um, so the people most sensitive to, quote, politically incorrect, unquote, terminology are usually not even the ones that belong to the group which the term refers to. Ted points out that, quote, political correctness has its stronghold among university professors who have secure employment with comfortable salaries, and the majority of whom are heterosexual white males from middle to upper class to upper middle class families, unquote. Leftists identify themselves with the problems of groups that have images of being weak, defeated, repellent, or otherwise inferior. That is, the leftists identify with these groups precisely because they themselves believe they're inferior. How else would they identify with feelings of inferiority if they did not believe so-called quote-unquote inferior groups are inferior? Then he throws in a disclaimer here saying that he is not trying to suggest that certain groups are inferior, but rather that leftists think that they are and thus identify with their problems. And that's, uh, that's an important distinction to make here is that Ted's not calling anyone inferior, any group inferior. He's just saying that, that like it's, <laughs> he's kind of stating that leftists view these people as inferior and that's why they relate to their problems. Um, that this example is like brought up a lot with conservatives today on, how like um, a lot of companies like oh yeah we need to increase the number of like black people or whatever in employment you know we just need to hire black people because they're black or whatever and it's like um, okay you just need to like give out handouts because of their color you don't believe that 
they can get there on their own through skill. Um, and so like, that's kind of like my thought there. Well, like there's plenty of black people that can get to these higher positions through skill, right? It's, it's like, it's totally a thing where people are thinking like in their subconscious mind that certain groups are inferior and they need to be like let in, right? And it's, it's not true because everyone has the power within themselves to become whatever they want to be. They have the power to do whatever they want to be as long as they put in the work and they put in the effort. Um, I won't get into it, but... So he, he brings up the example of feminists trying to prove that they are just as strong and as capable as men, but this only proves that they think that they aren't as strong or as capable as men. Why else would they have to prove it? Um, so, so leftists tend to dislike things that are associated with being strong or powerful. We see this most prevalently today with the continued hatred of the rich. He points out that the leftists say that they hate America in the West because it is warlike, imperialistic, sexist, etc. But when it is brought to their attention that developing nations also have these characteristics, they just give them an excuse. It's like, oh, uh, well, you know, they'll like, it'll be point out that countries in Africa are super warlike and there's lots of killing there. Right, and then uh, then they'll just say, oh, well, that's just because we've been stealing shit from them and they just haven't had a time to get off their feet. And, like, while, while that might be true, it's still just kind of, it's still an excuse. Um, it's still an excuse. So, leftists prefer to give blame to a person's faults on society rather than themselves. And that's, that's true. And I mean, I used to do that too. Um, I mean, I've been like pretty like on the left, like most of my life still, you know, I'm kind of like leaning, leaning left, but still kind of in the right a little bit. I kind of have like my foot in both doors a little bit. Um, but yeah, I used to always blame people's problems on society. And it's, it's kind of funny here though with with what Ted's saying here, leftists prefer to give blame to a person's faults on society rather than themselves. This whole essay is about is about the faults of society and how it's destroying people, individuals. So it's just like this is kind of his worst point just because um, unless, I mean, we can't, I guess Ted is almost kind of a leftist in, in a sense. And and you'll see why, because he'll point out a lot of stuff that kind of about leftists, he'll criticize them, but you'll realize that he's kind of doing a lot of these things in this essay. Um, uh, like, like he, he talked about how leftists, you know, they'll have a lot of unrealistic ideologies about the world. Okay, well, sorry, dude, but your essay is slightly unrealistic. Um you know, we're not going to destroy society. I mean, yeah, yeah, it might collapse, but the whole, like, the revolution just probably won't happen um, unless shit really hits the fan. Um, if shit really hits the fan, then, yeah, the revolution might happen just because people are already in a shitty mood. But 
Anyways, I won't get into it, but leftists prefer to give blame to a person's faults on society rather than themselves. And I'm totally guilty of this. I uh, used to tell my dad this one time we were like sitting in the hot tub together. And I was like, I, I sure am glad I'm not like a, you know, like a Mexican migrant worker or whatever, like hunting my back over 12 hours a day in some farm in like California or whatever. And my dad was like, don't ever feel sorry for anyone. They chose their life. And then I told him, well, you don't choose where you're born. But at the same time, you know, like, you, you don't choose where you're born, but you choose your actions after that. Um, regardless of free will or not, there's still, like, there's there's choice. There's choice, you know. Um, anyways, uh, leftists claim to be motivated by moral principles, yet often their violence and hatred cause the people in the groups they're trying to protect more harm than good. They seek power, not peace. This then incre increases racism and other bigotry by giving negative connotations to these movements. We see this with Black Lives Matter today, and how the protests causes them to be seen as domestic terrorists. Um, yeah. Uh, protests and the destruction of property does not make your movement look good. Um, people get pissed off. Um, like, as far as your... Because you, you want to be on the good side of the people who like you, you want to be on the good side of the majority right because the majority are the ones voting well i mean everyone's voting but you want majority amount of people to like your movement right so if you're destroying property you're not going to be liked by a lot of people and you're there's going to be a negative connotation there um so if society had no social problems whatsoever the leftists would have to invent them that's kind of, I mean, as leftism is kind of just, uh, the way I see it, it's kind of just, it's change. Left, leftism is change. Conservatism is, like, the, the right is for stability, and leftism is change. And the, the thing is, when there's no problems, you have to create problems because problems invoke change, right? Um, so that's kind of a good and a bad thing about leftism. Four, over-socialization. Quote, psychologists use the term socialization to designate the process by which children are trained to think and act as society demands. A person is said to be well socialized if he believes in and obeys the moral code of society and fits in well as a functioning part of that society. It may seem senseless to say that many leftists are over-socialized, since the leftist is perceived as a rebel. Nevertheless, the position can be defended. Many leftists are not such rebels as they seem. Unquote. The moral demands for our society are so immense that no one can actually fulfill all of them. He brings up the example of hating people. Um, in, in that... Uh, in that we're, we're told that we're not supposed to hate people, right? And, like, you know, like, everyone kind of hates someone, right? I mean, even me, it's, like, hard for me to, like, I, I've been over-socialized totally. Um, it's hard for me to hate people. It really is. I could give people an excuse for their behavior. I could give anyone an excuse for their behavior. You know, I could say, oh, he's just troubled, or oh, blah, 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 right? Um yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it can be a good thing and a bad thing.
Um, so then he, uh, there's kind of some more points to this. Highly socialized types are imposed with a severe burden by constantly having to think, feel, and act morally. So this kind of goes back to the, the series that I did with Mina on self-reliance in that a, a lot of people are so reliant on other people that are like they feel so dependent on other people that they have to they feel so like trapped by their morality like they can't even tell the truth sometimes like they have to like be nice to people constantly they have to say yes to people constantly and they're so like chained by their morality that they're like slaves to it you know um, then he goes on and he says uh, somewhere along the lines of over-socialized types have to deceive themselves by giving moral worth to all of their actions, even when the action has a non-moral origin. So, like, they'll do something and they'll feel guilt for no reason, and they have to say, well, I, I did that because of this. They have to, like, justify it. They have to justify all their actions. Over-socialization can lead to, quote, low self-esteem, a sense of powerlessness, defeatism, guilt, etc., the sense that they are taught to feel ashamed at thinking at thinking any quote unquote immoral thoughts. This keeps them more or less enslaved by societal standards. So <laughs> I'm gonna break away for a minute. I wonder does is it quote unquote or quote unquote? Like that because like I, I've been thinking everyone's been saying quote unquote might be quote unquote. They're just saying it super fast because it's going to be like a one-word phrase. I feel like I should look that up right now. Whatever. whatever. Um, to Ted, this is one of the more serious cruelties that human beings can inflict upon one another. And, and like, if you haven't read Civilized to Death, like, <laughs> fuck, dude, you got to read it. It's... he. So, like, Civilized to Death, they kind of bring up all these points without the revolution stuff and with way more like actual statistics and stuff um or not they but chris ryan he brings up a lot of statistics facts archaeological facts all that kind of stuff he, he basically brings up all the points to this essay but later and i know that he's never read this essay either he he said in his podcast tangentially speaking that he's never read it of course we that might be a lie like we have no idea I, I don't really know the guy. He he seems genuine. He seems honest. But anyways, um, next point, uh, over-socialized leftists try to get off their psychological lease by rebelling. However, what they rebel against is those who are not living up to the standards of society. That is, they remain on their psychological leash and further enforce the existence of such. In that way, it is self-perpetuating. So Ted gives a commentary on race almost too good to leave out. Quote, here is an illustration of the way in which the over-socialized leftist tries, shows his real attachment to the conventional attitudes of our society while pretending to be in rebellion against it. Many leftists push for affirmative action, for moving black people into high prestige jobs, for improved education in black schools and more money for such schools. The way of life of the black quote-unquote, underclass. They regard as a social disgrace. They want to integrate the black man into the system, make him a business executive, a lawyer, a scientist, just like upper-middle-class white people. The leftists will reply that the last thing they want is to make the black man into a copy of the white man, 
Instead, they want to preserve Amer African American culture. But in what does this preservation of African American culture consist? It can hardly consist in anything more than eating black style food, listening to black style music, wearing black style clothing, and going to a black style church or mosque. In other words, it can express itself only in superficial matters. In all essential respects, most leftists of the over-socialized type want to make the black man conform to white, middle-class ideals. They want to make him study technical subjects, become an executive or scientist, spend his life climbing the status ladder to prove that black people are as good as white. They want to make black fathers responsible. They want black gangs to become nonviolent, etc. But these are exactly the values of the industrial technolo technological system. The system couldn't care less what kind of music a man listens to, what kind of clothes he wears, what religion he believes in, as long as he studies in school, holds a respectable job, climbs the status ladder, is a responsible parent, is nonviolent, and so forth. In effect, however, much he may deny it, the over-socialized leftist wants to integrate the black man into the system, make him adopt its values. Now, I will add that the over-socialized type will look at white people in gangs, poverty, who act in... Oh, this is unquote, by the way, the, uh, after the now. Sorry. Um, sorry. I, I kind of just started reading my note. Um, but anyways, I'll add that the over-socialized type will look at white people in gangs, people in poverty, like poor people, irresponsible parents and whatever, and it'll give them like severe judgment look at them with disdain they'll be like they'll be so unapproving of these people they'll call them white trash right with that in the eyes of the white middle to upper middle class over socialized type white people are held to a double standard like you shouldn't be acting like this um and that's kind of like that's kind of the hint of uh them feeling that other people are inferior right that's that uh because they're holding white people to a higher standard why because they think white people are better um, th this is like a very dangerous thought concept, right? Because it can lead to, I mean, it, it escalates the race. It, it escalates racism. It doesn't destroy it. By, it's like, uh, it just, it's messed up. It's, it's not good. It's not good. Um, but anyways, uh, low self-esteem, depressive tendencies, and defeatism are not restricted to the left, but rather problems with our society as a whole. And over-socialization is only increasing as time goes on. And he'll kind of carry this point on later. He'll really strengthen it. But for, for now, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. Okay, okay, this is a really good section. Um, if you're familiar with Nietzsche at all, you'll like really love this section because it's section five. It's the, the power process. Um, so, so Ted really gets into psychology here and he, he kind of makes up this thing called the power process. So let's get into it. Ted describes how humans have a need not for power, but for what he calls the power process, which consists of four main elements with the first three being goal, effort, and attainment of goal. He explains that the fourth element, autonomy, will be described later. Okay. Sorry, sometimes I'm, I'm burping just because I'm, I'm drinking a Corona right now. Um, it's, it's kind of a 
it's like gee whiz you know thank thank the universe for corona extra right um thank the universe for industrial society for giving this beer to do on this podcast all powered by electricity and various companies Anyways, having anything you want just by wishing for it would be fun at first, but it would certainly get boring and depressing over time. Ted brings up the example of leisured, secure aristocrats usually ending, ending up becoming bored, hedonistic, and demoralized, even though they have power. That said, quote, power is not enough. One must have goals toward which to exercise one's power. And I know I, I mentioned uh, the movie Gladiator, in a couple of podcasts ago, and, and you'll see that with Marcus Aurelius's son, and even looking in the history of Marcus Aurelius's son, you'll see that power corrupted him because he didn't have any goals to look for, um, other than being an asshole. So, anyways, so now here, I can't help but to think of Camus' myth of Sisyphus in that the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill man's heart. Ted is saying that not only is it enough, but it is necessary in order to fill your heart. You can't just be on the top and your heart be full. You have to struggle to the top in order to feel your heart is full. Right? Um... And everyone has goals, the most basic being to obtain such things as food, water, clothing, shelter, etc. My thought is, um, modern society has such a large population of children who obtain these things um, and more without any effort whatsoever. That said, they grow up becoming bored, depressed, and demoralized. Um, and, like, I am one of those kids, you know, I got a lot of stuff without working for it as a kid. And I did become super bored, super depressed, and even demoralized, which, I, to be 100% honest, and I'm not I'm sure what that means, but I'm pretty sure it means just becoming, like, an amoral person where you're kind of not really, well, well, I guess, like, becoming demoralized, if that means becoming amoral i think that could be a good thing because you can look at things more objectively um i'm not sure anyways quote consistent failure to attain goals throughout life results in defeatism low self-esteem or depression thus in order to avoid serious psychological problems a human being needs goals whose attainment requires effort and he must have a responsible or a reasonable rate of success in attaining his goals, unquote. Okay, part six, surrogate activities. Ted brings up that not all wealthy people who have it easy end up bored and demoralized. As many of them just create artificial goals by which they can work toward and achieve. Quote, we use the term surrogate activity to designate an activity that is directed toward an artificial goal that people set up for themselves merely in order to have some goal to work toward. Or let us say, merely for the sake of the fulfillment that they get from pursuing the goal. In modern society, only a minimal, no, unquote. In modern society, only a minimal amount of effort is required to obtain the basic necessities of life. It only requires, quote, a moderate amount of intelligence and most of all, simple obedience, end quote. With how easy life is, there is a plethora of surrogate activities in modern society. 
You can uh, rebuild cars for fun. You can write. You can do podcasts. You can eat a bunch of food. You can yelp. You can go on Instagram. You can jerk off. You can drink. You can smoke. You can doodle on your phone. You can draw shit. You can do whatever the fuck, right? There's so many surrogate activities. I mean, in fact, most people's jobs in the middle to upper middle class are surrogate activities. So, his next point, surrogate activities are less satisfying than the pursuit of real goals in that one will never be truly satisfied when after the accomplishment of a goal. And it's kind of funny how he... So, this is kind of one of my biggest critiques here is that he's kind of saying that, um, say, if I wanted to, like, get a promotion... Like, that's not a real goal. And, I mean, like, I get it, but to to be honest, I kind of think that's that's just bullshit. <laughs> like, like that, that is a real goal. I mean, it's a, that by definition of goal, that's a goal. Because, um, like, sure, sure, I sympathize with him, but I, I just don't think that the use of, like, real goal or unreal goal is a very good terminology. Um, I, if I were to give him, if, if he were to like be about to publish this, then I would have told him like, instead of saying real goals, I think he should say fulfilling goals. Um, it would be a bit more, it, it, it would give it a little bit more weight because real is kind of just like, they're all real goals by being a goal. If it's not a real goal, then it's just not a goal at all. Right. Um, anyways. So, well, I mean, just to point out, I, I think what he's really talking about is he's talking about fulfilling goals versus unfulfilling goals, not real or unreal. Anyways, the, the pursuit of real goals in that one will never be truly satisfied when after the accomplishment of a goal. So the scientists will find more problems. The runner will run longer. The writer will write more books, etc. While people will say that they gain more fulfillment from their surrogate activities and fulfilling their biological needs, which fulfilling the biological needs is what Ted is referring to as real goals, this is precisely because of how easy it is to obtain one's needs. Additionally, we obtain our needs not autonomously like we do with our surrogate activities, but as part of a social machine. Okay. Part 7, Autonomy. And just, just as a disclaimer, um, Ted doesn't number his sections. He just numbers his paragraphs. I'm just numbering them because I said there was 27 seconds. And that's kind of just the way that my notes are written. Um, anyways, part seven, autonomy. A, quote, autonomy as a part of the power process may not be necessary for every individual, but most people need a greater or lesser degree of autonomy in working toward their goals. Their efforts must be undertaken on their own initiative and must be under their own direction and control. Yet most people do not have to exert this initiative, direction, and control as single individuals. It is usually enough to act as a member of a small group. Thus, if half a dozen people discuss a goal among themselves and make a successful joint effort to attain that, that goal, their need for the power process will be served. But if they work under rigid un orders handed down from above that leave them no room for autonomous decision and initiative, 
their need for the power process will not be served. The same is true when decisions are made on a collective basis if the group making the collective decision is so large that the role of each individual is insignificant, unquote. So his next point, um, one may feel autonomous by doing, by doing fulfilling or by fulfilling the needs of others but developing skills while doing so. However, most people, they need to have a goal uh, they designate to themselves, work towards themselves, and achieve themselves. This is essential in development of self-esteem, self-confidence, and having a sense of power. I mean, I, I highly agree with this. Um, it makes you feel way more co- way more confident in yourself when you when you have the idea, you set forth to take action, and you accomplish the ends of your idea. It makes you feel so good about yourself, and it makes you feel way happier as a person. Like, oh, I can think of something. Like, you, you like it's the difference between uh, having a dream and never making it a reality, and having a dream and making it your reality. Um, your imagination is literally can you can make it a reality, and that's empowering. Um, so his next point. Uh, not having the ability to go through the power process with a significant rate of success can lead to, quote, boredom, demoralization, low self-esteem, inferiority feelings, or inferior feelings, defeatism, depression, anxiety, guilt, frustration, hostility, spouse or child abuse, insatiable hedonism, abnormal sexual behavior, sleep disorders, eating disorders, etc., so essentially, Ted thinks it, it, it leads to all of our psycholo- all of our psychological problems. Um, and he's, he's kind of right. He, he's very right in a sense, because when you're experiencing a psychological problem, you do feel weak. You feel powerless. It feels horrible. Um, anyways. Part eight, sources of social problems. So the, the mental slash behavioral problem, problems mentioned in the previous section were not nearly as prevalent in primitive societies. And primitive man actually had less stress and frustration and more fulfillment with life than modern man does. Society today is going crazy and redeveloping more and more problems as we go. And that is so true. Um, in, in modern society... Every new solution creates more problems. Every new invention just creates more problems. Like you, you invent a car and now everyone has to drive. Now we have to build all these roads. And the more problems you solve, the more problems you have. Um, more money you have, the more money you spend, right? Um, it's just, that's just how it is. More people, more pollution. More guns, more violence. Well, that actually might not be true. I'm not sure if more guns lead to more violence. I think it's more so more violence leads to more guns. But, uh, the oh, God, there, there's this one episode of the Nietzsche podcast that kind of talks about mistaking effects for causes. Um, if I find it, I'll add it to the link of this video. Um, and as a side note... I was I just appeared on the Nietzsche podcast. Go check it out. Um, it's he he kind of does this uh, side series within the series 
called Untimely Reflections. And I'm in one of the episodes and we talked about death and God. Kind of, uh, it was almost like a yin, in like a yin-yang sense. So go check it out. Go check out his, his show. He's got some really cool stuff on there. So anyways, um, let's, <laughs> sorry for the PSA. Let's get back to it. We are required to live in ways completely different than how we evolved to live. That is, our society goes against our very nature as human beings. Then it brings up that uh, among these abnormal conditions are, quote, excessive density of population, isolation of man from nature, excessive rapidity of social change, and the breakdown of natural small-scale communities such as the extended family, the village, or the tribe. Increased population density increases aggression and stress. The Industrial Revolution increased population density on a mass scale, causing humanity to essentially grow like a cancer cell on the Earth's surface. And that is... <laughs> that is just... Now, Ted didn't say the cancer cell part. That was what, what I added. Um, or I, I might have added that whole second. I'm not sure. But yeah, we are growing like a cancer cell. I mean, I kind of got that idea from, I was watching like a Joe Rogan stand-up comedy years ago before I even knew about Joe Rogan. It was just like a random thing that I found on Netflix and I had no idea who he was. But he was flying in an airplane. And he, the camera kind of shifted to like a city. And he was like looking over and he said, look at us, look at that. We are a cancer. We're just growing out of proportion. We're destroying everything. That is so true. Is uh, that's what's happening? We're growing like a cancer cell. We're killing the earth. We're killing everything in our path. And that's just that's not like no amount of not littering or like not driving your car is going to change that. So the next point. Um, for primitive societies, nature offered a relatively stable environment in that nothing out of the ordinary or new ever came to be. All the weather disasters of a thousand years ago still happen and will continue to happen for millennia to, to come. Human society, on the other hand, changes continuously and thus contains no stable framework whatsoever. And it changes even more today and it's continuing to change at a faster rate. Um, and then he brings up the conservatives are fools in that they whine about the decay of traditional values while also supporting technological advancements and economic growth. Like you, you're not going to have um, your old, like your old values aren't going to stay in place if we continue technological growth and we continue economic growth. It just, that's just not how it works. Um, so next, the system breaks up communities and that people often have to move away from their families to get a job elsewhere. People must be more devoted to the system than they are to their families. And that is more and more true every day. Um, people are leaving their communities or going elsewhere. And, and like, well, I, you know, a lot of people want to. They, they want to get out of the small town. They want to live in a city. And I guess almost in a sense the system has changed their mind in a way. Um, and of course, I don't want to blame everything on the system. Um, some people might have just really hated being in a small town. Might have just been boring as fuck. But 
but he he brings up a good point in that like people just it's more common these days anyhow right um and the next point people cannot even hire their friends or family for a job today without looking as if they are discriminating against other people and that's kind of that's one of my things where i that's kind of like my main critique on the whole like uh, men are getting paid more than women. Well, they're probably getting paid more than women because more men are in executive positions and men are generally friends with men, not women. So they're going to pay their friends more money than someone they don't know. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm saying like that's kind of one thing that's going on. And people don't even feel safe anymore hiring their friends or their family because it's seen as like this horrible thing. Um, anyways, change is imposed on a modern man rather than generated on his own. That is, they're not being given the chance to bring change on their own and thus go through the power process. Okay, part nine. Quote, we divide human drives into three groups. One, those drives that can be satisfied with the minimal effort. Two, those that can be satisfied but only at the cost of serious effort. Three, those that cannot be adequately satisfied no matter how much effort one makes. The power process is the act of satisfying the drives of the second group. The more drives that one has in the third group, the more psychological problems occur. Okay. And there's, kind of, there's quite a few points to this, like four points to this. Uh, modern society essentially pushes out most of our drives into the first and the third group. So, um, most of our drives are either being satisfied with minimal effort or most of our drives can't even be satisfied at all. Um, then another point, primitive societies had almost all of their physical necessities fall into group two as it could be obtained, but only at the price of serious effort. Um, and then, ah, oh God. So I, I know I bring this up a lot, but if you check out Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death by Chris Ryan, you will really, this will, all this will really drive home with you. Um, he, he really brings up a lot of good points in his books and, um, and go check out his podcast, Tangentially Speaking. It, it's awesome. It's awesome. I have a lot of good things to say about it. But anyways. Uh, and, and by the way, I'm not sponsored by literally anyone. I just love all these podcasts. Um, and, and I love people giving... Uh, I love giving people credit when they deserve it. So anyways, uh, Ted deserves a lot of credit. So let's keep going. Um, so modern society fulfills their needs through obedience and minimal effort, which completely destroys our autonomy. That, that's true. <laughs> like, um, we depend on everything in our society. We depend on this huge system and it makes us feel so non-autonomous, it makes us feel so like powerless to it all, you know? And that's kind of, that. that's a point that we really brought up a lot in the self-reliance series in that like all this all this kind of creates a really repressed society and in a repressed society where you're basically forced to be reliant on everyone else um, it's important to 
steal some of that reliance back for yourself. Um, so anyways, while social needs remain in group two, such needs are still relatively easy to obtain, especially today. In the time that Ted wrote his manifesto, he never could have predicted such apps like Tinder or Bumble, which make the drive for sexual pleasure extremely easy to fulfill. Additionally, internet porn was not nearly as accessible or even available in 1995 when this was written. These things cut out the awkward and extremely difficult challenge of walking up to someone and asking them out. Now you can just swipe left or right and ask someone to hang out with you or forget about, quote-unquote, hanging out with someone altogether and resort to the wide variety of internet porn. And that is just so, it's just, like, some people just don't even know the thrill of going up to someone that you think is beautiful or awesome and just, like, all the nerves, like, you're sitting there, like, thinking, oh, God, should I talk to them? Should I talk to them? Like, they're looking at me. They're looking at me. And when you go up and you talk to them and it, works out and you see that like oh they're into me too then it feels so good it's like doesn't feel nearly as good as like uh oh you got a match with some random tinder bitch <laughs> like like it, it feels way better to be in person and uh and you know all those nerves like taking the courage to go up to them and now it's just like they made it so easy today it's like They've basically stripped people of that autonomous power process of going out and getting a date, right? Um, they've, yeah, it's just, it's not good. It's not good. Like, um, it's, it's, it's one of the, I'd say it's one of the main problems with, like, people's ability to have a relationship with someone is just going to decline, and decline and decline um, because they just they can't go out and men don't have the courage anymore to just go up and talk to a woman and with and just risk being rejected for that one moment um, or like women don't have that courage anymore either right um, anyways many people in modern society seek fulfillment of their goals but to no avail um, yeah, like so many people, like we're told that we can have anything when we're kids, we can be anything we want to be. And all this is like, oh, I want to be an astronomer. And like, you're probably not going to become an astronomer, dude. Um, <laughs> you, you might and like go try for it, but there's a lot of, a lot of competition out there. The, the goals are getting harder to accomplish, right? Those big goals are getting harder to accomplish. Um, most people today work in jobs as someone else's employee doing something they were told to do in the way they were told to do it. Even small business owners have a small level of autonomy with useless government regulations, but such regulations are necessary to keep actually in the complicated society running. So he, he advocates for the necessity of other regulations in society because they're necessary for society to keep going. You can't have a society with all these regulations. You can't have a society without laws. They're, they're necessary for society to happen. Um, you, and he, he'll, his most famous line in this whole essay is, you, you can't 
like you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? You, you can't have this and have that too, right? Um, next point, people in society pursue goals that are only attainable through the, sit through the system or that they could have only ever conceived of by being part of the system. They must follow the techniques of experts to gain success. It's all just a bunch of process bullshit, right? You have to follow all these systems. You have to get a bachelor's degree. You have to get a master's degree. You have to get a doctorate. And uh, all the requirements for you getting a job are getting higher and higher. Higher and higher by the day, by the minute. Um, and, it, and I'll bring out that these requirements, these things, are, are they're necessary because you can't just... You can't just have like a million experts walking around. And it's also like a power thing. It, it, it's something that's been happening for ages, you know. People, you know, you can't, like, we won't teach you how to read because we, you know, like us, the priests, are the only ones that are allowed to read the Bible. You know, stuff like that. Um, power is kept in, there's certain guidelines to having power, right? Only if we let you have power, you can have power. Um Next point, people not only have an ability to obtain slash strive for real goals with autonomy, but most of their drives cannot be fulfilled. We live in a world where our drive for security is in the hands of other people. At any moment, Biden, Putin, or some other world leader could start an economic or nuclear war, wiping out all of our hopes and dreams in an instant. Men can get drafted for war, women can get their abortion rights revoked, etc 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 um yeah it, it's fucked up we we live in a world where <laughs> you're not even allowed to die anymore you're not even allowed to go out like not covering your mouth um like sh sure you so like i'll to be clear here I, I sympathize with like wearing a mask like i I, I wear a mask when I go to, like, the store and whatever. Um, mainly because I don't really want to get COVID and go home for Thanksgiving and give it to my mom or something because she has asthma, right? Um, but, like, you know, enforcing all this shit on people, um, forcing people to sick themselves with a vaccine, forcing people to wear a mask, like, all this is for the system, right? This is for, oh, yeah, because if you don't get a vaccine, then people are going to die. And if people die, then people can't work for us. People can't make us money. People can't promote the success of the system. It's all about the system, right? It's all about the success of the system. It's all about the success of the herd. all about consumption. It's all about production. And that's kind of, that's just the, <laughs> like, people talk about, and, and that's kind of what Ted brought up earlier with, um, you know, they'll say that all the, like the left will say that all this stuff is for, because it's the moral right thing to do. You know, it's not about you, man. It's about everyone else. And it's like, it's such a, it's just such a, uh, it's almost like the system is like talking through them, right? It's like the technological, it's like the, religion of progress or religion of secularism is like talking through them like we must protect everyone we must make sure everyone stays alive we must 
you know, we must do this, we must do that. And why, why, why must we, like, death is a natural part of life. Why, why are we being so, like, why are we being so repressive towards death? Why are we trying to preserve something that's inevitable? Why are we trying to, like, prolong the inevitable, right? And it's like, it, it's all about, like, for me, I think it's kind of the system is kind of bred into our minds that progress and staying alive as much as, as long as possible is like super core values of our system, right? And why? Because if people are alive, if people are healthy, um, they can work, they can produce, they can consume. And that's really like, I, I think that's kind of the main modern uh, use of all this is that when the when the individual throws it on another individual that they must protect the rest of society, the herd, that it's their responsibility to do so, um, that instinct to tell someone that they must protect the herd, that increases as uh, progress increases. Um, it's it, it's kind of like my example with the uh, with the tower, right? With uh, building a skyscraper. Uh, once you get to that 250th floor, you're like, I'm not stopping now. I got to keep going. I got to keep going as fast as can, as fast as I can. I, I'm going to keep trying to prevent it. I'll keep trying to reform some of my building. But shit, shit, you know, you, you can't keep up with it. Um, anyways. Uh, Ted then brings up the disclaimer that Printer of Man had a lower life expectancy. But this doesn't matter since he actually was able to defend himself from that which he tried to harm him. We can't. So... <laughs> That's interesting. So this is really where you should read uh, Civilized to Death. Um, because that's actually not even true. Pinter Man, the average life expectancy was lower. That's just because of infant side, right? Um, the, let's see what I said in my note. Uh, while the second half of the statement is true, Pinter Man actually lived just as long as we do. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the only difference is that infant mortality was extremely high, which caused the life expectancy average to be extremely low. So really, this strengthens his point even more in that Peter Man not only lived just as long as we do, but had an even more fulfilling life with a sense of confidence and autonomy over his life. Threats to the modern individual are generally man-made by people whose decisions he has little to no influence over. I'll add that our lives are in the hands of people who are not even alive anymore rather than nature and chance. This can cause frustration and anger, like an itch on the middle part of our back that can't be reached. And let me tell you, I, uh, I swim a lot, like in chlorinated pools, and that shit happens to me a lot, and it sucks ass. Um, anyways, primitive man has his life in his own hands, or the hands of a small group rather than a huge conglomerate of governing agents. With that, man either attains security extremely easily. I'm, I'm literally like, I'm holding my bottle of Corona and I'm like, move, I'm doing like hand gestures while holding it. Legit, legit. Um, anyways, with that, man either attains security extremely easily, food, water, shelter, or cannot obtain it at all. Threat, nuclear war, economic apocalypse, etc. Um, his next point, 
people have many drives in modern society that, because of all the rules, regulations, and laws, cannot be fulfilled. Ted brings up the example that fighting is essentially illegal. One must drive the speed limit regardless of whether they are in a hurry or not. And if one couldn't afford food at a grocery store or a hunting license, it would still be illegal to hunt. Um, I think those last two ones weren't his examples. Those are mine. Um, yeah, I don't want to make, like, put words into his mouth. Um, while, while modern society gives us freedoms in certain ways, not really in the ways that matter. We can believe what we want. Fuck we want. Shit in whatever toilet we're allowed to shit in. Um, but that, like, that stuff just doesn't really matter, right? Because we can't be who we want, you know? We can't, uh, we, we can't be who we want. Um, that, that's another thing that we, we brought up in the Self-Reliance series is that a lot of people are repressed from themselves. They wear masks and wear disguises of the people that they think society wants them to be, that their friends and family want them to be, but they're not being themselves. Um, our behavior is regulated by social pressures as well. Um, yeah, a lot of our behaviors pressured is uh, caused by social pressures. Um, I bet most people go to college because they feel like they should, right? Um, so let's see. Primary, so his next point, primitive society is a series of stages. One learns to hunt, has children, then dies. And he, he, he makes it more sophisticated than that, but I'll, I'll bring up the point that like, that this isn't necessarily a good point. Or at least he doesn't really explain it very well, just because um, the way that he explained it, I mean, it, it's just not a good example, just because we also live, most people in our society have a series of stages in their lives. Um, you go to school, go to college, you work, you get married, you have kids, and you die. I mean, it's, I mean, you learn hunt, you have a mate you get a kid and then you die. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like the same, I mean, there's like a series of stages too. But, um, but I know what he means, especially like reading Civilized to Death. Um, Chris Ryan kind of brings up how, um, how like these things are just like more fulfilling in a primitive society. Um, It just, like you get a better sense like there's a whole ritual between becoming a boy and becoming a man that really empowers you make you feel like a man and there's not really like that ceremony here in the united states i mean there's going to college and drinking a shit ton with friends um and i guess that kind of makes you feel like an adult but like still you feel like a kid right there's not that ceremony of you're an adult now um it, it just doesn't really exist in our society. And that that's kind of a, a really good point there. But uh, anyways, um, for the primitive man, life is, for the most part, simple and straightforward. Now, now that's the one part that I do agree he made a really good point. Um, the primitive man has an inherent lack of choices, but an inherent increase in his ability to master his own life be autonomous and provide for himself and family slash tribe. 
Modern man, on the other hand, has numerous amounts of choices all laid out for him by society and not nature. Uh, primitive man uses his body daily for practical purposes and does not fear deterioration or old age, but the modern man does. So that's uh, one thing. Um, there's my, my dad has this personal trainer, and uh, he, he gave me a call the other day and ju just to like, because I was telling my dad that I was hitting a plateau in the gym. And he's like, oh, I have my personal training call. I'm like, oh, well, okay, okay. And he, he was telling me that uh, a lot of the workouts that people are doing today, um, they're totally unrealistic. You know, people are separating their body into muscle groups and they're doing all these different workouts for like their chest try and abs. And I was doing that. And he told me, Greg, stop, stop doing that. Like, stop. Uh, splitting into muscle groups and do full body workouts every day do more natural movements and you'll feel a lot better and i have been doing that i've been feeling better right um so that's sort of that printer man using his body daily for practical purposes and not um doing that makes you feel way better doing like instead of this uh sort of cut and paste like the experts say you should do this um, instead go for a run do some do some burpees, you know, uh, like go run on a mountain, go for a swim, uh, do, do more engaging workouts and engage your whole body. Um, so, so that's kind of like my modern, my super modern interpretation on this um, is that it feels better when you use when you kind of fit into that natural vibe of your body. Um, so that so. Um, anyways, the printer man uses his body daily for practical purposes and does not fear deterioration or old age, but the modern man does. And like, why do I work out? Because I fear deterioration or old age. I fear being ugly, stuff like that. The printer man doesn't. He just uh, exercises because he has to, right? He has to. He has to exercise to go get his food. He has to exercise to survive. Um, exercise is a part of his nature. Um, it is the man who needs whose need for the power process has been satisfied, who feels prepared to accept the end of his life. And that is so true. Um, people in primitive societies, um, and, and this is also more knowledge from Civilized to Death, um, basically all my knowledge of like tribal peoples are from that book and from listening to his podcast, uh, Chris Ryan's podcast. Um, anyways, it's uh, that is so true because in primitive societies, they don't fear death as much as we do. And, and I brought this up in the Nietzsche podcast too, in that, uh, that uh, primitive, or like in our society, we're so alienated from death. We're so alienated from like seeing death that we, we just, we just aren't prepared for death. We fear it like no other. Right. Um, so um, his last point in this section, if the system gives the opportunity for autonomy and the will to power, as I'll call it, because it's, I mean, Ted's basically talking about the will to power here. I, I'm not sure if he's read Nietzsche, but he's probably definitely has. And that's kind of probably where he got this whole power process going. I mean, the power process is basically the will to power in a more cut and paste, um, like, this this and this sort of way instead of more an app instead of an abstract way it's more 
Like it, it's more tangible the way that Ted describes it. it. It's his own kind of take on the will to power, I think. Um, that That's at least my interpretation. Um, anyways, if the system gives the opportunity for autonomy and the will to power, then they're still on the leash of society. They're not actually like in that process, right? They didn't activate autonomy. And they must be off the leash in order to fulfill the power process. Okay. Part 10, how some people adjust. Some individuals have a weak drive for power and thus feel perfectly comfortable in modern life. Some individuals may have an exceptional drive which disallows them from ever getting bored of trying to fulfill it. This is me with writing and podcasting. Some individuals, although having a large amount of money, are so susceptible to advertising that they are actually poor. Um, yeah, like some people like spend a shit ton of their money. Like they make a good amount of money and you think that they'd be rich. Like you'd tell that like they'd tell you their salary. You're like, oh damn man. But you hear that they're not saving any money because they keep spending all their money. It's coming through to them like water. Um, people may satisfy their need for power by identifying... Oh, wait, hold on. But I'll also bring up the point, and this is something that Ted will bring up later, is that this society is kind of something that I was thinking about when I was going shopping the other day. Because I, <laughs> I, I bought an energy drink, and I bought a... Uh, like a another little like ice drink like one of those sparkling ice like water things and i was thinking oh and, and that was after working like a 10 11 hour day right um and i was like oh this society like producing like working being a laborer makes you want to consume so it's kind of like this self-perpetual engine right you might make a lot of money, you might produce a lot for this society, but that'll just make you want to consume more and thus contributing to the need to produce, right? That The more you consume, the more people have to produce for you to continue consuming. And, um, th this is also something that Chris Ryan brings up in Civilized to Death. In, or No, 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 not, not Chris Ryan, sorry. Th this is something that uh, Daniel... God, I don't remember his name, but the book Ishmael, in the book Ishmael, um, he, he brings up the point that we'll give food to starving Africans in Africa, and then they'll make more babies, right? They'll make more babies, and then more people will starve, and we'll have to give them more food, and they'll make more babies again, and more people will starve, and so on and so forth, right? The more, more makes more, right? More makes more, um, Anyways, uh, people may satisfy their need for power by identifying with a large and powerful organization and adopting its goals as their own, dash, feeling partially satisfied when accomplishing something for the organization. Thus, the need for power is exploited by large organizations to achieve their ends. All governments are essentially guilty of this, as well as religious organizations. Um, I mean, you can use anything as an example for this. Um, so I'll just leave it up to you to come up with those examples. For other ways that people adjust, I highly recommend reading Zapp's The Last Messiah. Um, 
as he goes into how people adjust to modern society and the fear of death through distraction, anchoring, sublimation, and isolation. Which I, I won't explain those just because I'll, I'll probably do an episode on The Last Messiah at some point. Because um, I, I think it's extremely, it's an extremely important work. Um, but go into it, dive into the essay, read it, go check it out, and you'll really get a glimpse of death repression and, and how all that works. So, to Ted, the pursuit of power through surrogate activities from being part of an organization or from distractive activities is demeaning and contradicts our true desire to obtain and strive for quote-unquote real goals. Um, I'll say fulfilling goals, goals that contribute to our biological needs, our biological nature. Okay, so we just brought up a lot of stuff. It's been an hour and 24 minutes. So I'm going to end it there for part one of industrial society and its future and let some of that stuff be processed. Maybe let you, the listener, go and read some of the essay and kind of get kind of a firmer grasp on what's going on. Maybe go read like a summary of Civilized to Death. Go read a summary of Ishmael. Go read a summary of Sex of Dawn. Uh, read this essay, obviously. Go check out some documentaries. Go do whatever you can to kind of get a better grip on all this. And then come back for next week's episode on part two. It's going to be the last part. It's going to be a two-part series on... Um, Crazy Uncle Ted's Manifesto, Industrial Society, and its Future. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. And don't let society tear you down too much. Take it easy. And thank you for listening.